and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where moments before one of us was taking an everything shower and having a grand old time before recognizing that they were losing track of time. The I'm other Teresa. one of us just got off work. Ooh, I cut you off. I'm sorry. I'm no, Angie. you're fine. I mean, this is <laughs> honestly, this is what you can expect. We're going to carry on like this for the next hour. Um, Here we are, peeps. The whole premise of this podcast, if you are tuning in for the very first time, is the two of us compulsively learn history stories on our own. And then each week we join forces and tell each other the story that we just researched in detail. We're going to pretend the other one may have never heard it. I like to hope. I don't know. I'm still vying for the day we tell the same story. Honestly, this I feel like this might be the day since we both really fought hard to get our episode to publish either the day before day of you know like weekend yeah yeah, like this is the moment we need to tell this story because it is time sensitive and that makes me a little nervous i am excited (laughs) ah yeah so who went first last time i don't remember i think it was you i because you said something about not having a um Oh, no, maybe it was me. You were the palate cleanser last time. Why would I be a palate cleanser? Because you didn't have a um, sad story. You had a jolly romp. Oh, no, you're right. You're right. I shared the tale of Clara the Rhinoceros. You sure did. I had to like quickly research what was episode 46. Where am I? What color is the sky (laughs) in my world? We have a yellow sun. So do you want me to go first? Sure. Okay. Uh, Before I tell you my topic or read you my sources, I'm going to give you kind of a modern day premise. Like if this were to happen in today's times, this would be the situation. And then I'm going to have you guess what I'm covering. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So to modernize the event that I'm covering, I want you to imagine, Angie, that you and I are um, smugglers of goods and we are desperately afraid of legal goods coming into the market, flooding it, and then ruining our ability to sell things. So with that in mind, imagine you and I breaking into the Sacramento airport, okay, going to the cargo hold and destroying over a million dollars in merchandise of a publicly traded company that our senators hold a lot of stock in. Because... And that that was the legal goods, and and we uh, don't the legal want that goods. flooding the market. So we don't want we that want flooding to sell the market. Our, we want to sell our, for our, lack of a better word, moonshine. <laughs> basically, uh, you know, our our equivalent of moonshine. Okay. And we destroy so over a million dollars impact senators to do this. Okay. Jail what time. am I? What am I covering? I don't want to say anything because it might be my story. <laughs> no, I don't Angie. think it is. I don't think it is because my story doesn't mention s- the destruction of anything. Okay, then it definitely isn't because but destruction very... is the the key point. Okay, in my story. Okay. Um, let's see. Are we trying to sell avocados? No. Okay. Are we trying? So this is senators are involved. The equivalent of like I'm having to, you know, do modern equivalent here, modern 
Oh, right, 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 right. So this isn't something that happened in like the last 25 years. No. Okay. No. Um, we go in and we destroy all the loaves of bread in the bakery because bread is contraband in certain countries um, when it is not governed by the government, governed by the government, by the royal family. I feel like this is getting real weird. Do you want me to just tell you what I'm covering? Yeah. The Boston Tea Party. I'm so excited. <laughs> Not the story I thought you were going to tell. <laughs> okay. So my sources, uh, the Jamestown Settlement Museum, the Tea Act and the Boston Tea Party, Britannica.com. I looked up the Townsend article or the Townsend Acts, the Boston Tea Party Ship and Museum. They had an article on tea smuggling, a journal article from the Early American Studies, Anglo-Dutch Revolution, Spring of 2012, Volume 10, Number 2, article titled, Did Dutch Smugglers Provoke the Boston Tea Party by Benjamin L. Karp? And the podcast, History Doesn't Suck, They Covered the Boston Tea Party. All of those are where I'm starting. I love this for me. I love this for you. I love this for our listeners. And I love the fact that your dear husband was the one who was able to keep his mouth shut because this was the one I was like, okay, I'm going to cover this, but keep her off the scent. He did an exceptional job and I am deeply saddened it wasn't me that told the story first. Really? But also delightful that it's you. Okay. Um. So this was one of those things that I had heard in a TikTok mentioned in passing. And I went, well, there was some nuance that my history book skipped. Um, and that is basically how the Boston Tea Party wasn't a protest against tax per se, but smuggling. <laughs> can I just, before you get started, can I just say I love that you gave me a modern day equivalent that was us breaking into the Sacramento airport. <laughs> For my next trick. Exactly. I mean, but that was just basically like, let's think about like what this means, what this entails, because it's so easy for us to be like, yeah, yeah, it's a Boston Tea Party. This is what we studied in school. It's fifth grade. We made the little diorama of a boat. And a hat. And a brick of tea. And some cellophane ocean waves. And yeah. Some caffeinated sharks, because there were sharks in Bay of Boston. I don't know if you knew that, but they were in my diorama. All right. Anyhow, tea, perfect for smuggling. It's lightweight. It's subject to British duties. It's in high demand. And during the 18th century, people in the British Empire want tea. People in the British Empire still want tea. And the East India Company, I might refer to them here and that as the EIC because writing that out over and over again in my notes was taxing. They had a monopoly in, on selling tea in, British, in GB, Great Britain. Um, if you will. <laughs> yeah. So the East India Company has is kind of an interesting thing. And like, you know it, but you may not you may not remember all of these things. Right. Like they are a company. They are an army. They are a government. They are an entity. Right. They are just massive. They are um, a monopoly. They are like the Amazon of the 18th century. They are, but it's so history doesn't suck. The podcast they 
talked about how since they had their own army and parliament of, you know, were shareholders of it, that it was such a big thing. It's basically like thinking about joining fra- Starbucks Frappuccino Perry Trooper unit. Like that's an image I will never get out of my head. You're welcome. But I but it's you think of it just like that. Yeah. You know, like Captain Jack Sparrow went up against East India Company. Yeah, he sure did. And so you but it's like, okay, oh yeah, those are things that exist in history and not, you know, made up for a movie. Um so they the East India Company gets its gets a blessing from even Queen Elizabeth the First to, you know, develop this full Lizzie thing. So one. Lizzie one up, you know, gives her blessing, knights the shoulders of capitalism, and carries forth. So it's about this. I heard knights the shoulders of capitalism and carries Thor. <laughs> and now I have a comic book sketch going on. I mean, <laughs> it wouldn't be Lizzie one that did that. It'd be uh, our Lord and Savior, Walt Disney. <laughs> okay. All right. Carry on. Yeah. Um, so the East India Company, they've got a monopoly on tea because they are the sole allowed importers of tea from Canton, China to England. That makes sense. And that's where the British Treasury places, you know, some really high duties on it. And then once the tea lands in Great Britain, it gets hit with an importation tax. And that's where it's sold to wholesalers and it gets another round of taxes. And then every time it's passed on, it gets another round of taxes. Now, many of our European countries, they also have access to Canton, China and have the ability to buy tea. But the problem is they don't really drink tea. They don't really use tea, but they like the idea of smuggling it to Great Britain and its colonies. (laughs) And so they would do that. If you can stick it to the man and make a book. Yeah. I mean, look, you're already there buying silk, buying bright, but whatever you're going to buy. Spices. Like, that's just another commodity. And it's lightweight. All you have to do is get on a boat, smuggle it to England, sell it on the coast, and then turn a profit and come back home. Just don't get caught by anybody in a red coat and you're fine. Now this this does kind of put a a weird buff like thing on it because you have these European countries who import their own Chinese tea to either England or to the colonies and then it gets distributed. Well, leading up to the revolution, we have smugglers working in a network between Europe and the British Isles that upgraded their ships to be better fa- better armed, faster, larger, better, like stronger, they- faster. <laughs> exactly. Like they systematize this whole process. And that just cracks me up to think about it's easy for us nowadays to talk about globalization and a global market and everything like that. But it's this is hundreds of years in the making. These smugglers even get their shipments insured through the through Lloyd's of London. Are you familiar the with Lloyd's? Yeah. The Lloyd's of London. You know, so it could be Mick Jagger's lips. It could be <laughs> Heidi Klum's legs. Gene Simmons. Kit Harrington's tongue. hair. Yeah. Whose tongue? Gene Simmons. Oh, Gene Simmons' tongue. I heard you wrong. Yeah. yeah, his tongue. Y'all, she gave me the best visual just then. Full on Gene Simmons' tongue out her mouth yeah. in a scream. Just yep. saying. 
I know I'm good. I'm good for it. That's that's what I'm bringing to this podcast. You can be assured <laughs> that even in an audio format, I am bringing the visuals. <laughs> You're bringing Gene Simmons' tongue. Mm-hmm. And so these smugglers even have lines of credit through both London and Amsterdam. Like, so this is a full-on enterprise. And it is nuts that this is an illegal trade or an illegal good. Now, as we think about it in the colonies, smuggling is rampant. One Massachusetts-based loyalist named Peter Oliver wrote, it was notorious that smuggled teas were carted through the streets at noonday. Like, just blatant, blatant. I believe the term here is moral turpitude. (laughs) I mean, city dwellers refer to smuggling as merely unlawful rather than just unjust. I mean, because they're getting the tea too. So what do they care? Right. You know, and this, if you think about it, market forces. If your tea is too expensive, we will find another alternative. In fact. And so if you want to sell more goods, you need a lower price or you need to have less goods available. In fact, these are things. So smuggling, as it was back in late 1700s, is pretty easy to accomplish. You either have to lie about the providence of the goods or you just have to hide them from custom officials. And one of the articles I read detailed where you could hide things and smuggle things. And it would, it just cracked me up that somebody sat through and went, no, but you could roll it up in here and you could hide it under here. I was like, okay, yeah, I've seen a lot of things about smuggling, right? I'm not going to say that I am a well-trained expert, but I, it, it just, you know. You know some things. I've seen a couple things about the cartel, right? Like I understand, yeah. you know, modern day drug trade. And it feels weird to think about this for Earl Grey. Um <laughs> The problem with these, the smuggling in general back during this time is it's not uncommon for the same custom officials that are supposed to be cracking down on it to be actually a part of the smuggling rings. And this is especially prevalent before Parliament starts reforming the custom service in 1764. So we're winding up to 1773. Okay. So morale in the colonies is so bad in 1767 that Lieutenant Governor Cadwallader Colden, that name just makes me, it's nails on chalkboard, just the way it's written, just Cadwallader. I don't know. It, <laughs> it just, it the name sounds like needing to pick up a pile of wet paper towel. <laughs> I was going to say it reminds me of where the term like molly wop, but I like your answer much better. <laughs> I mean, you it's just obviously I've got a sensory issue there, but not a pleasant sensation to see written on a page. But he wrote, no officer at this time dare make a seizure in the colonies where all restraints on trade are unpopular and where it may be seized in power of a single man to set a mob upon him. Okay. So, you know, like, I mean, we see this guy just carting tea through the streets and we're just going to let him because uh, I I don't like pitchforks and torches. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, he's got the goods we want. He's like the he's like the Robin Hood of tea. The I literally don't get paid enough for this. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. So smuggling is also very difficult to trace in larger cities like New York. And this was something I found very interesting. The journal article that I found talks about how trading for many of the trading firms in New York had Dutch roots and they were a part of Dutch companies or were partners with Dutch firms. Now, Anglo traders conflated the word Dutch with Deutsch. And so basically all Northern Europe is one chunk. Everything's related. No, there's no nuance. So if it's French tea, it's referred to as Dutch tea. That checks. Basically, Americans have always been bad at geography. That's my takeaway. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you're not wrong. And so even in a port city like New York, a goods origins were nebulous at best. Okay. Is it Dutch tea or is it just legal tea brought from a Dutch company? Like maybe a little know. of both. A little column A, a little column B, have a nice <laughs> cup of tea. Exactly. Right. I'm just I'm going to have, you know, a breakfast tea to think about it. So we also have issues of like Philadelphians who are connected to these markets in New York and are buying the smuggled tea and then further disseminating it through their distribution networks, further separating it from the smuggler. Everything's just all convoluted. During this time, it's estimated that three quarters of all the tea in British North America were smuggled. And that might be conservative. <laughs> That makes me happy. Smuggled tea accounts for 18.5% of the value of all imports during this time. It's, you said 18.5%? Yeah. So nearly a fifth of all imports. Yeah, that's impressive. So, you know, the TLDR, Americans wanted tea as cheap as they could get it, and they don't care about legality. Seems very American to me. You're not wrong. I mean, I'm glad <laughs> to see us staying true to our roots. <laughs> so 1767, England, they, they really seek to, to fix some of these things. They repeal the Indemnity Act on tea and refund the 25% tax on tea that's been exported to Ireland and North America. First off, 25% tax, that's the markup? That's wild. I mean, truly, when you think about all the taxes at every level, it gets up to about 50%. Yeah. So, but just the initial, oh, we'll just shave 25% tax off. Call off it the good. Top. And then they impose a three penny per pound tax on the imported tea. And Richard Clark, who is one of the largest tea importers in Boston, thought the first part makes sense, but said the three penny tax did nothing to curb smuggling. It's like, I mean, you made it cheaper, but then you just added another tax. Yeah, that's not really helping. No, they're not great at math. And so not all of the colonies smuggled tea equally. And do you remember back in episode 24 when you covered Penelope Barker lived in the South? Mm -hmm. Smuggled tea is more uncommon in Southern colonies. That makes sense. Yeah, you're further away from the distribution network. Meanwhile, in Boston and other Northern cities, non-importation agreements discourage imports from Great Britain opting for Dutch tea to the tune of 180,000 pounds sterling per year. That's okay. in 1767. So in today's money, that's 32 million pounds or 40 million in okay. USD. Okay. 
Now, the Sons of Liberty, they're basically the ones policing the non-importation goods. Basically, they're like, you know, we're not taking any, they're with the Penelope, Bar- Penelope Barkers. They're like, we're not importing any British goods. We are yeah. staunchly opposed. Yeah. So they're doing this both loudly and violently. It's a small problem. Um, despite this group of separatists policing these non-importation agreements, there's proof that Boston not only imports legal tea, but they reship it to other colonies. John Mine, a printer of the Boston Chronicle, publishes figures that proves that the Sons of Liberty were hypocritical, opportunistic, and unfair. And he prints cargo manifests of all the imported goods. Oh. Like he comes with receipts. And this implicates merchants allied with the Sons of Liberty, including one John Hancock. The John Hancock. The big signature, ain't no room for the rusty to sign this yearbook, John Hancock. Yeah. And in the colonies, Boston develops a reputation for, quote, casual lapses in upholding the non-importation and makes a mockery of their efforts. New York and Philadelphia blame Boston for the tea tax continuing to be levied against them. They're like, yo, if we could all hold a united front, they would drop this tax. But you guys keep shit in the bed. Very American. I mean, there's always going to be one problem, child. Always. If we had enough tea going to Florida, it would have been Miami. That seems weird. Drinking tea in Miami? Yeah. Yeah, you're not wrong. So October 1770, the Bostonians sullenly ended their non-importation agreement and then began ordering British goods. They cave entirely. They're like, you know what? You're right. We're not good at it. We're just going to go back to ordering and paying taxes and all the cool stuff. Legal. We're going straight, man. Yeah. It's just, we just need, we just need them fine goods. Them draperies. Porcelain. The lead, the glass, the paper. We want it all. Not homespun silk. I, I don't think the mulberry worms were coming from China to America to do the silk. I mean, you were getting some homespun cotton, some real rough crap. You weren't you were getting silk. I'm saying. <laughs> All right. So fall of 1773, there's news of a tea act that reaches the colonies. Um, it doesn't impose any new taxes, but it gives merchants, you know, refunds that makes the tea cheaper for American consumers. And this stirs up the Sons of Liberty who are now afraid that it'll cause the colonists to drink legal tea. Oh no, heavens, they be legal. Well, and the crazy thing is, is as they're doing this, like as, you know, Britain is doing a lot of these reforms to try to encourage legal tea drinking, they're noticing an uptick of legal tea drinking in England because apparently even the British were drinking quite a bit of smuggled tea. I mean, listen, they all want their tea, you know? Right. And so part of the tea acts and what they're doing, uh, the East India Company actually gets a little bit more power than they originally had, which is saying quite a bit. They're able to appoint their own consignees at four of the American points. Now, this means that they can sell their tea to basically only these consignees. They don't have to go to the standard wholesalers. And then the wholesalers now have to buy from these consignees. So this is a very lucrative post. You're guaranteed to make money. Right. Okay. And these appointments extend the East India Company's monopoly from the tea trade in the Pacific 
all the way through to the Atlantic Ocean. And then one New York consignee, Benjamin Booth, writes, the only person suspected of making opposition are the smugglers, all professed sons of liberty. So it's not the merchants or anybody in the middle who are actually standing to lose their livelihood. It's only smugglers. That's, of course, what this guy thinks because he's sitting pretty with the nepotistic appointment. There you go. So we have, this is the full setup. All the chess pieces are on the board. And it's- You know what I bet? Yeah. I just, I totally didn't mean to interrupt, but you know what I was just thinking? I bet you our pirates were involved in this. Um- no, because they didn't move to the U.S. until I think they weren't until they didn't move to the U.S. until 1800 or so. Yeah, but you're still smuggling. You might be. But I mean, they were this is 30 years before that. Yeah. Smuggling is always smuggling the, in the U.S. <laughs> Jean and Pierre Lafitte were not infants in their mother's arms on the bow of a ship smuggling. I'm just going to float this out there. I wasn't saying. I wasn't saying as as babies. <laughs> I mean, the timeline. Time works in a linear fashion, at least how we experience it. Anyhow. That's how we experience it. Okay. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> so the East India Company, they have seven contracted ships that are coming to American colonies. Four of them are headed to Boston. Now, Boston has this history of fouling things up and letting things through, so they're they're banking on Boston letting this legal tea in the country, and it's the safest northern port that they they have. Okay. And the EIC knows that of these four large shipments of tea, it'll make it absolutely cheaper than the smuggled tea that's going to flood the market. Right. So, so here's the part where we break into the Sacramento airport. Here we go. So now the Sons of Liberty are super pissed off. They can't allow the legal tea into the country. So the Sons of Liberty members in New York and Philadelphia, they they react swiftly and harshly. The Boston team, not not so stiffly. Um, they're they're maintaining their their roots. New York and Philly release pamphlets and articles in newspaper threatening any local merchant accepting tea consignments from the firm of Richard Clark and Sons, a firm that's firmly in bed with the EIC. Okay. Meanwhile, the Clarks, they're arguing that cheaper tea is going to benefit the the consumer, the end user. They state that it's weird that Americans are suddenly complaining about this tax when they've been paying it for the last six years. They're also not complaining on the tax on wine, sugar, or molasses. Hmm. Okay. They're like, yo, pull your heads out of your ass. You're you're already doing it. You've been doing it. Why are we so excited about it right now? Like, kiddo, your bedtime's always been eight o'clock. Why are you rioting? That's a fair question. So this article is in favor of, of legal tea, is argued that the EIC enjoyed the monopoly on tea and hoarded it to inflate the prices, which caused the tea smuggling in the first place. If the tea smuggling wasn't so highly priced, then there'd be no temptation to smuggle it. So they're fighting on both sides, right? Nobody's happy. Despite the... Yeah, I mean... Honestly, it makes me feel a lot more calm to know that our newspapers were always so biased. (laughs) Yeah. So despite the fights in newspapers, both American smugglers and merchants hate the Tea Act. And the EIC and its hand-picked consignees have a huge advantage over everyone else. Oh, I I forgot. Um, The consignees, they also make um, 
a 6% commission that's thrown in. That's just pure nepotism. Perfect. Uh, one of the consignees for Boston is the son of the governor of Massachusetts. So, yeah. He did not have a clue how to do that job. Well, I mean, it just goes to show that, you know, it's all who you know. Yeah. And the Sons of Liberty, with all of this set up, they're afraid that the cheap and tea might inspire people to imperial allegiance, which feels like a weird thing for me. It's like, you know, this tea makes me love the king. <laughs> he is buying their love. Da 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 da. <laughs> so thank you. Thank yeah, you so much. <laughs> I know. Philadelphia consignees were, quote, anxious to hear further from Boston and to know the measures pursued there. So everybody is watching Boston. This checks. And it's at this point that we have a combination of geography and weather that start helping us roll dice. We have the Dartmouth, which is one of the four ships bound for Boston. It gets there November 28th. And so keep this near noodle because it's important. The next ship arrives in South Carolina. Now, the northern ports don't learn about the South Carolina ship until the end of December. Okay. And then we have the Polly, which goes up the Delaware River, and then the other three Boston-bound ships. So once the Dartmouth arrives in Boston, the Sons of Liberty are convinced that they're the only ones standing up to the British. They're the only ones who've gotten a ship as far as they know. And they have a history of being sloppy. So they've got a lot of mistakes to make up for. All they want to do is send the tea back to London untouched. Because as soon as that tea exits the ship, they get slapped with taxes. Right. Okay. Meanwhile, the local government officials and consignees from the East India Company are insisting that they get on that boat and unload it. Hmm. Okay. So there's there's tension as they're trying to do their... They're just dock workers trying to do their job. Right. Right. And then the Sons of Liberty are out there like, oh, no, you can't go. I, I don't know what they were chanting, but I'm imagining picketers. <laughs> I'm shocked there was not more dock workers that were in the Sons of Liberty. Unclear. I didn't do the research, but it could be that they were all dock workers. I mean, not all, but. So the ships that are carrying the company's tea arrive in Philadelphia and New York, but they choose to return to England without unloading rather than facing the angry mobs. Because New York doesn't play games. Yeah, like, they literally, like, I don't get paid enough for this shit. Like, I am just, mm -mm, nope. Turn it around. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sam Adams ends up being the lawyer who is supporting the owner of one of the ships in Boston. Okay. And he counsels his client and says, just send it back and say that, you know, there was... It was too treacherous because there were storms. It was damaged or storms. I like, can't remember how it was worded, but basically th there were storms. And he was saying like, because it's political storms, not mm, physical storms. Yeah. Like it, yeah, it's okay. not a meteorological storm, but it's a, it's a political storm. And you're returning the tea from the political storm. Keeping it safe in the hands yeah. of London. Gotcha. So Massachusetts, however, the royal governor that's been appointed by the British, he refuses to allow the ship carrying the company's tea to leave the harbor without paying the tax first. So he's locked it in there. He's like, nah, it doesn't leave. This checks. Yeah. Now, 
we get to the evening of December 16th, 1773. We have protesters, some disguised as Native Americans. They board the three ships in the Boston Harbor and they throw out 342 chests of the East India tea into the water. This is a large loss for the East India Company, and the tea was worth well over a million dollars. Back then or today? Today. Okay. But it's like 46 tons of tea. Yeah, that's a lot of tea. It's not a small amount. And the only person who was injured got, like, knocked out with a tea chest on accident because he was being a dumbass and zigged when he should have zagged. Um, I take it back. There was another guy who got his ass beat from like trying to put the tea into his pockets and his compatriots were like, absolutely not. No, we're, we're dumping it. <laughs> yeah. It's all, it's all in the, in the, in the, in the Harbor. Um, the day after the tea party, Reverend Samuel Cooper, the day after the Boston tea party, Reverend Samuel Cooper described it as wanting to second their brethren and other colonies that they wanted to diminish their culpability in the destruction of the East India Company. He's like, look, we, we just, we knew our brothers were doing it. We knew New York and Philadelphia had strong feels. We we had to do this to just stand up with them. This wasn't us. Just standing in solidarity. That's it. Interesting, because the other two cities had it together and got the boats turned around. But they, okay, so they couldn't <laughs> in Boston. And they really, really, really tried. <laughs> like, the owner of the boat was like, I mean, just... Just send it back. And governor's like, absolutely not. And they go to the customs official. And the customs official were like, yeah, no, not so much. But you, we can unload it for you. Yeah. You, unload it? you want me to unload it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. And so it was like hours before the tea would be seized by officials. Because once the boat stayed in the harbor for X number of days, I think it was 20 days, then they had the authority to go on board and take it. Oh, okay. And so it was just like day of. The owner of the boat was like arguing with the governor for hours and hours and hours. And then like 5 p.m. he comes into Old Southie, the meeting place where he's like, yeah, I can't do it. I tried my best. Wipe my hands off. And that's when the Sons of Liberty come dressed up as Indians and go cosplaying and LARPing down the street. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you yeah, I'm here for it. I mean, we had to do a call back to previous episodes. Now, another thing that I didn't necessarily recognize is the Boston Tea Party actually inspired similar other actions. There were protests very similar to this that occurred in Edenton, uh, or sorry, Edenton, North Carolina. <laughs> which, oh my gosh, that was Penelope Barker's. Uh huh. Yeah. Sorry, I just made that connection. Um, Don't silly apologize. Me. It's a beautiful connection to make. I know, but I, I should have done it intentionally and sounded, you know, confident when I made it, as opposed to being like, there was another one in like Edenton. <laughs> Kind of. Um, Sounds also, familiar, vaguely familiar. I don't know why, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, Yorktown, Virginia had another part protest. And then news of the destruction of tea is what causes outrage in England. And As instead of. Yeah. I mean, look, we all like the thing and you destroyed it. I mean, it's like if nowadays, if you destroyed Tito's vodka, I think the entire <laughs> left coast would just riot. <laughs> now when this happens instead of repealing the tea act parliament decides they're going to punish boston and the people of massachusetts so they close the port in boston in june of 1774 along with issuing the intolerable acts and this gives colonies one more reason to resent par parliament and move a step closer to declaring their independence 
I love this all over tea. Right. And it, it wasn't necessarily over tea. It was over the smuggling and our found, founding fathers being absolute cartel holders. <laughs> like, and that's the nuance my history book missed. But maybe I was also a fifth grader who wouldn't understand. Did not know what the cartel was. No, I really think genuinely history doesn't tell the back end of that story at all. No. I mean, because you look at the articles and it's just like a bunch of people were upset over the tea tax and they threw the tea in the harbor. And then the revolution. Ta-da! It's like, but but the the smugglers, the Dutch, it's the Dutch's fault. They stirred the pot. (laughs) Without the Dutch, we would have never done it. We'd still have the king on our money or, you know. Mm. thanks I don't know I really I'm, don't I'm conflicted because I really would have let Lizzie too take me back I mean when I think about how Vancouver Washington used to be British soil it was like one of the last territories that the British gave up and people were saying make America great again my snarky ass was like make Vancouver British again <laughs> Yes. There was a an Onion article that came out about Queen Elizabeth deciding to take back the colonies. Um, I want to say 2014, 2015. And it was like one of the funniest articles because I was like, yes, ma'am. I've already worked mm-hmm. the curtsy out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please and thank, thank you. you. <laughs> I, I won't abandon coffee, but I will adopt more tea. I don't drink coffee, so tea works for me. Yeah, I, I don't think Pepsi, though, is... is the drug of choice for the... I have not had Pepsi since Halloween. I think about it every day. <laughs> that that, I, that was the hardest one to give up. I see your fiending in your eyes. Do you? <laughs> I, I do. The longing. Yeah. One day, stare off in the mid distance. I just keep thinking about my birthday and how I will have a Pepsi on my birthday. And it'll be amazing. And a Pepsi flavored cake. I like your style. I'm nothing if not classy. As <laughs> keep it classy. <laughs> yeah, as documented in the Pepsi cake. <laughs> All right, but that's the story of the Boston Tea Party. I loved your story of the Boston Tea Party. Um, do you want to hear my story? Um, but I, ha- I have to start with questions. I mean, to be fair, I had to take you on a merry jaunt of us breaking into an airport. That's true. Um, what what is the most Canadian thing, or more specifically, Canadian crime you can think of? The maple syrup murder or maple syrup heist. December seventeenth is National Maple Syrup Day. Did you know that? I didn't know that. In fact, Are you covering the maple syrup heist? I am. Well, yes. <laughs> So you can imagine my panic there at the beginning when you talked about breaking into the airport and I was like, oh, God, we're smuggling. Oh, Ian, oh. <laughs> Ian you set this up, you rat bastard. <laughs> he lied to both of us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly, him keeping a secret and him playing both sides to orchestrate this both check. 100%. And he could do it with a straight face. Either way. Would have been golden. At the beginning of this, I loved him. And at this moment, I hate him. 
Or do you love him more because you know he'd do it? No. <laughs> no. I mean, at this point, it's it's Tombstone. I, I, it's, <laughs> now I, I really hate him. Now I hate him. <laughs> I, can I just say that over the, however, 45 episodes we've um, recorded, Tombstone gets brought up at least half the time. <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, because it is the most quotable movie on the planet. It is perfect. It is up there with the Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I said yeah. what I said. You're not wrong. I stand with you. This is the hill we will die on together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Honestly, that is the best compliment. You think about it because you're like, you know, I just need something with a little bit of violence. Both play out. Perfect. I needed a bit more slapstick. Go to Princess Bride. I need to see Val Kilmer. You go the other direction. That Val Kilmer, I guess I should say. Yes, true. Because you, you could pick many other Val Kilmers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I'm I'm covering the um, Great Maple Syrup Heist. Um, my sources are a handful of articles from The Guardian because The Guardian thoroughly covered the events during and after okay um one of my favorite titles sticky situations maple syrup bandits face quebec court for infamous heist that's by the by the guardian um the canadian <laughs> encyclopedia has a great article on it um by tyler noex uh that was that article comes from march of 22 there is another March 2022 article written for Forbes magazine. Ringleader of the Great Canadian Maple Syrup Heist ordered to pay multi-million dollar fine. These headlines are literally my favorite thing ever. Uh, NPR article. Thieves hit warehouse holding 30 million of Canadian maple syrup. Glorious. Okay, so did, so a handful of fun facts. Um, did you know that Canada has a strategic maple syrup reserve? Is this like our cheese cave? I was thinking more like Fort Knox, but okay. You, you know about our cheese cave? I don't. You're going to have to tell me about the cheese cave. There is a cave in the Midwest. I can't think of the exact location, but it is a strategic cheese reserve. Thank you for this information. My youngest son bows to you um i now have to take him to a cheesecake i guess uh cheesecake so yeah, yeah I'm, you yeah. could have cheesecake in route in to cheese, cheese cave <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah i'm gonna assume it's the same thing it is called the strategic maple strategic maple reserve maple syrup reserve and i just need you to know that the word strategic messes with me every single time i try to say it i never say it right so there you go um when I said the phrase strategic maple syrup reserve out loud, Owen, my weeest one, he who loves the cheese, said, <laughs> I got you. That means you're Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> I love him so much. Um, so 72% of the world's maple syrup supply is sourced from Quebec. Did you know that? No. Yeah. According to Taste of Home, Quebec produces an astounding amount of syrup each year. <laughs> seven million nine hundred eight and eighty nine gallons that's <laughs> not a little bit 
No, the runner-up is Vermont with only 890,000 gallons, followed by Ontario, Canada, New York, and Maine. But, okay, but hold on. When I think about it, Quebec is not a city, it's a province, right? Yeah. Okay, that's a big province. There's a lot of ground versus Mm -hmm. Vermont, which is a, you know, a piddly little state. It's not the size of California. That's that's true, but it is also, I mean, how many times is... 890,000 go into 7.9 million. Look, this is not a math <laughs> podcast, right? Right. Either way, it's a ton no matter what, right? So at the time of the heist, maple syrup was valued at approximately 13 times the price of crude oil. Some of yeah. my sources suggest that today it's worth 30 times the price of crude oil, which I think is absolutely wild, right? You know, this we need green energy. And more maple syrup run vehicles. Mm-hmm. I mean, they imagine how good the roads would smell. People would eat more breakfast, I guarantee it. Right? We'd all have diabetes. But, I mean... <laughs> maple syrup flavored diabetes. Um, it also, it takes 18 kilos of maple tree sap to make just half a kilo of syrup. So there's that. What? Uh... I'm I'm now confused with how this works. Like I thought that it, you put it the little tap in the tree, and what comes out is maple syrup. So I'm not an expert on this, but this is my understanding of it. Oh, because my final source is an episode of Dirty Money on Netflix. Um, I believe they tap the tree, right? And the yeah. sap is what comes out of the tree, and then that gets like um distilled down into syrup. I'm unclear on the whole process, but that's the way I understand it. Okay. Uh, So I'm going to set the scene for you real quick. Between the years 2011 and 2012, (laughs) the Federation, which the Federation, if you ask, well, they are the Federation of Maple Syrup Producers, an organization that represents nearly 7,000 syrup producers and controls nearly 80% of the world's maple syrup supply. In other news, there are 7,000 maple syrup producers. Yeah, um, in Quebec. <laughs> in Quebec? This makes me Wild, feel right? like Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's where she's got like all of the richest people just in, in tune, like just programmed into her brain. Yeah. Like I it, need to, if Hubs, if Hubs wanders in front of a bus, I need to find a maple syrup bear. You do. You really do. Um, so... So the Federation, which is in the process, so like I said earlier, it's between the years of 2011 and 2012. The Federation is in the process of constructing a new state-of-the-art warehouse to store approximately 50,000 tons of maple syrup, representing 50% of the typical year's harvest from the province. The province is 44 million taps. Good night. Right. So, during this transition period, 10% of their supply is kept in a rented warehouse southwest of Quebec City in a place that I'm, please forgive me, St. Louis de Blanfort, which is, um, it's got a full-time guard living in the apartment above. So, mind you, that's 10% of their supply is housed in this warehouse southwest of Quebec City. And there's a guard who lives above, which it went from sounding state-of-the-art with its own federation overseeing it to now feeling like it's in some provincial town. Like it's in a storage locker downtown, right? Yeah. Um, And so that is because... Right, right, right. 
that is because the Federation is in the process of building a new warehouse. So this okay. portion is being just stored there. So once a year, the facilities are inventory inspected. So in July of 2012, Inspector Michael, I'm going to butcher this, Garvey, who works for the OPEC maple syrup producers, the older name for the FPAC, which is the Federation. Yes, they go by FPAC like OPEC. <laughs> so there's that. I mean, this is Seems- this is getting wilder. Right. So he, Michael is counting the reserves at the temporary facility. Um, and to quote the words of Simon Trepanier, the executive director of the FPAC, they tightly regulate the production and the sales of the region's maple syrup. So he says, quote, when he, referring to the inspector, climbed on one pile, he basically grabbed the top barrel, and because it was empty, empty, it was not 600 pounds, but maybe 40 pounds. So he tried to grab it, and then it almost fell. This is how they determined that some barrels were filled with water and some were empty. Very scientific. Right? At this point, the FPAC figures out that they have been robbed of 9,500 61 or maybe 9,571 barrels. Differing sources say different things, but 9,500 barrels have been gone missing. A shit ton of maple syrup has flooded the market. Worth nearly 18 million Canadian dollars. So $5 American. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. That wasn't that wasn't even kind. <laughs> this this investigation leads to police raids in New Brunswick, Ontario. And as far south as Vermont and New Hampshire. And they are wholly convinced by this point it is an inside job. I Funny mean... enough, in these raids, they seize forklifts, four ginormous kettles used to boil down the syrup, and tanker trucks, which were used to transport the syrup. So I have this image of like a gas tanker truck. Right? Yeah. Like, I that's mean, like, what I'm picturing. Have you seen the big ones that like... Like the big gas tanker trucks, but it says like milk on yeah. the side. Yeah. Imagine that, but syrup. <laughs> so about this time, 25 people are brought in for questioning. 16 are arrested. And it's it's determined that Richard Valier was the group's leader. He was already known as, quote, a barrel roller, which is basically someone who's figured out ways around the tight regulations of control and supply. So he is a smuggler. he is found guilty of fraud trafficking and theft and in 2016 he is sentenced to seven years ten months in prison he receives the harshest penalty for all the for all the arrested in this case he was also fined 9.4 million dollars and was given 10 years to pay it or six years in prison so you have 10 years to pay 9.4 million dollars you get another six years on your term but how who has that just in their couch? And if you're in prison, how are you going to rummage through and earn? Well, so the way that I understand it, and if our listener out there has a little bit more clarity on this, the way that I understood it, once his initial time was served, his seven years and 10 months, he then had 10 years to pay it back or he would serve another six years. Like, so I he mean, would have to report back, right? Like, that's the way that I understand it. I would look to expatriating to a country that doesn't have extradition. You would think. Um, 
there's some pretty funny bits that come in here, but one of the conspirators quotes claimed that their actions were not theft as the FPAC supply management pro- practices were unfair to producers. Um, Valaris, Valaris himself says that he was coerced to do it by a man who carried a gun. That doesn't hold water at all. Like later on, it makes no sense to me that he would say that, but I think it was just a, a last minute attempt to maybe get a lesser sentence. And well, it's to implicate Americans. That's what it is. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as I said, the syrup had a market value of more than 18 million Canadian dollars, which is in American money, 14.4 million dollars. Uh, he said, <laughs> Wait, at so his what trial, you're saying is. Apples to orange or apples to apples. The maple syrup heist was 14 times the tea heist. The tea heist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Valier says, excuse me, I pronounced his last name wrong a few moments ago, but Valier says at his trial that he actually sold it at a lower price. Uh, I think he's saying that in hopes to get out of paying such a high fine. Um, because Canada has some pretty interesting laws in regards to um, theft and what you're required to pay back. So I think he was just hoping for a lower uh, fine at the end. Mm. Um, additionally, his father, Raymond, as well as a New Brunswick-based reseller called, wait for it, Eatine St. Pierre were also found guilty. Is Eatine St. Pierre not the most French name you've ever heard in your life? Is it Etienne? Etienne, Saint Pierre. I mean, that is that yeah. is very French, right? Um, as well as a man called Avet Crone, and he was the husband of one of four people who owned the warehouse where the syrup was being temporarily stored. That's it still a ton of people involved. So many people, right? It was Crone who made the offer to Valier to steal the liquid gold. In 2017, Caron received a five-year prison term and a $1.2 million fine. As of 2017, all three men were appealing their convictions. Um, recently, though, in early 2022, during his third parole hearing, because he was denied two prior times, he stated that he planned the heist for profit and as a retribution for a 2007 fine of $1.8 million that the FPAC had imposed on him for selling the liquid gold on the black market. So he'd already been busted for it previously, and in yes. protest, he decided to do it again. Yeah, because we're super brilliant about this. Um, now, it should be said that FPAC doesn't have the love of the people. There are a lot that call it uh, mafia with its scare tactics and totalitarian totalitarian? Oh Thank you rule and cartel they can compare it to a cartel wait a minute so there is a mob that controls the supply of maple syrup that's what the growers akin it to yes i really need to think about my second marriage (laughs) i've got to orchestrate getting into the maple syrup air i mean you're and flannel think of how comfortable you'll be and flannel like but flannel like from the big flowy with the, the you know boa um, mm-hmm. sleeves where I just like look like a prince a lumberjack princess flowing yes. through the hallways my queen in fact 
I could say a boot, an A. There you go. I love cheese and gravy. I can put that on fries. I'm good with this. Angie, Perfect. I have found my calling. You're welcome. I, I didn't know this was going to lead to a life-changing event, but here we are. Sorry, Mike. Just keep praying that Mike stays healthy and I'll stay <laughs> as I am. But without that, I will seek a new life. As a, as a maple mob of... princess. <laughs> I love this for us. Because I'm only going to benefit as well. Right? <laughs> Just um, casks of grade A maple syrup coming your direction. It's going to be glorious. And then I'm going to get fined by a fact. <laughs> no. For Mine will goods. all be legit because I'm going to be part of the family. That's true. That's true. Um, so... There are all types of litigations and all sorts of lawsuits that involve the FPAC. So the gist is they're not friendly and they keep real tight rules on how this is all supposed to be done. And the growers are just trying to live their lives, right? Um, Valier, Valier is appealing the fine portion of his case, but Canadian law, like I said, has some interesting thoughts on that. And the Guardian has the has the best way to describe it. Quote, on appeal, the amount was reduced to only one million. The amount val, val oh my gosh, the amount Valia claimed to be the profit on his theft. But on Thursday, Canada's top court disagreed, arguing that a court doesn't have the power to diminish a fine that the original fine should be restored. Distinguishing between an offender's income and expenses in order to determine the offender's profit margin would essentially amount to legitimating criminal activity is what the courts write the court then said lawmakers in canada had drafted the criminal code to deprive offenders of the fruits of their crime and to defer them parliament is sending a clear message that crime doesn't pay and thus is attempting to discourage individuals from organizing themselves and committing profit-driven driven crimes the court writes it continues he was ordered to pay the fine of more than nine million Canadian dollars, which is seven point two million U.S. dollars. Um, and I don't know why, but when I read that, I could not help but laugh because Canada is so polite that they're like, "Listen, our whole goal is for you to pay this fine so you will not be enticed to do it again." But here he is doing it again anyway. <laughs> Well, I've uh, only done it twice. I know, right? And I got prison time. Gosh. Allow me to regale you with a couple of more blurps and a, a, head, a couple more headlines and a blurp about the case. I already told you about the sticky situation, maple syrup bandits face Quebec courts. Um, <laughs> maple syrup heist. Quebec producers bounce back from sticky situation. <laughs> Sappy ending. Canada digs deep into strategic reserve to cover to cover maple syrup shortage. Shortage, <laughs> a shortage. Wait, it gets better. A poor harvest season and booming demand has prom prompted Quebec's syrup cartel to release around twenty two thousand tons of the luscious liquid. And wait for it, my favorite one: trade war. Canadians horrified to learn that some maple syrup is from the U.S. I mean, look, <laughs> we have sullied their shelves. We absolutely, absolutely had. Um, the Montreal 
Gazette says, quote, as suspects were being rounded up, the heist made news around the world and was fodder for comedians who joked about a crime that could only be carried out in Canada. The same Gazette says, funny enough, this is not funny to Canadian harvesters. <laughs> and the, Gar- the Guardian follows up with, north of Montreal, Normand Urbane, a fourth generation maple syrup producer, is busy checking some of the taps at his 7,000 maple trees before the forthcoming harvest. Like many producers, he was stunned by the heist and still smarts at the ridiculing the industry received from Canadians and or from can- comedians in the U.S. Like, look, we don't have the nationalized health care. We've got a lot of other issues. Let us make fun of your maple like, syrup problems. Like one time, man. For once, we're drowning out Florida man. Would you let us be? (laughs) Please. (laughs) And that is the absolutely ridiculous story of the great Canadian maple syrup heist of 2012. Now, that being said, there have been previous maple syrup heists. I love this. There was one in 2003. We don't have any information on that one because every time you try to find any information anywhere, this is the one that comes up, but it kind of mentions it in the in the wings, you know. So if anybody has uh, some details on the 2003 maple syrup, if you are I'd a part of that. the maple mob and you've got access, please unhinged.historypod at gmail.com. Also, if you are looking to be Teresa's second husband. No, because Mike (laughs) is still alive and counted for. Like, I am not redoing again if I don't have to. But I'm just saying I'm now developing options. So, yeah, that's my story. I am going to tell Mike that you're trying to bury me off into the the maple syrup mob. Okay. (laughs) He's going to have significant questions and concerns about us continuing this podcast. Um. Just, but are you going to tell him that it was your idea first? <laughs> Stop it. Quit twisting this around like we're recording it or something. <laughs> I'm not really trying to marry you off. I like you the way you are with, with the human you're with. He seems quite um, suited to be your life mate. Very true. There's very few people who can deal with these antics. See, here we are. Well, that was um, delightful. I have loved this. Me too. I love both of our stories were about smuggling. <laughs> and not about the same smuggling. Yeah, I've got to go high five my husband now. Well, if you have enjoyed this and you can't wait to see what we possibly do next week and what themes are going to emerge, smuggling or otherwise, because this has been a bizarrely themed episode. Um, join us rate review subscribe share us with your mom's dog walkers neighbor and uh, on that note goodbye goodbye